In 2018, the Wealth Standard Podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism. For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast and our season around the topic of entrepreneurship. My guest today is none other than Robert Green. I'm so fortunate to get to interview and learn from some fascinating individuals, and Robert Green is right there at the top. He boasts six, that's right, six New York Times number one bestsellers. Those titles are The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, Mastery, The 33 Strategies of War, and The 50th Law, who he wrote with the rapper 50 Cent. And he's also the author of the new book, The Laws of Human Nature, which we're going to be discussing today. A successful entrepreneur doesn't exist without other people. I don't believe fulfilling life is possible without other people. The nature of a human being, our drives, instincts, emotions, and behavior have been studied by literally millions, yet humanity continues to be rife with the dark side. War, murder, abuse, bullying, infidelity, divorce, bankruptcy, corruption, depression, anxiety, and the list goes on. Even though we have made incredible strides in an array of areas, that snare still remains elusive. Now, what does that have to do with you and what does that have to do with entrepreneurship? Well, it's no secret that a lot of businesses fail. I'm sure that that's not the initial intention. And the amount is much more than those that succeed. That ideas without execution are worthless and that execution without other people, other humans, is like assuming a successful investment is a lottery ticket. So please, please listen closely to this interview. Also, get this book. I'm on video right now and for those of you who are tuning in via YouTube, but it's The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. So go and check out the show notes. We have links there to Robert's website as well as his social media. And you can head over to YouTube and see the interview on video as well as some of my commentary. And the links to our YouTube channel is on our show notes. Okay, that's it. And let's go ahead and welcome my very special guest today, Robert Green. It is truly an honor to have Robert on the show. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. You just one of those amazing interviews that if anyone, at least I'll benefit from it, it'd be excited about it. But thank you so much for joining us and doing this interview. Thanks, Patrick. I hope I can live up to the hype. <laughs> sure you can. You've made such a difference in the lives of you know my as well as those that have influenced me. And your most recent book I found just fascinating. And I'll hold it up here, Laws of Human Nature. And we'll put all the links to it and so forth. But you've written so much. I think this is your sixth book. 
And the first thing that came to my mind, what to ask you is just maybe the circumstances that inspired you to write the book and maybe just some of the elements that perhaps weren't in the previous books that you wrote. What was the backstory to that? Well, there's several kind of channels that go into what influenced the book. In Mastery, I had a chapter, chapter four, on social intelligence. And the basic idea was that it's a book to teach you how to become a master in whatever field you're in. But you're not going to be great at whatever you do unless you also know how to get along with people because we're a social animal. You could be technically brilliant. You could be a consummate computer hacker. But if you offend people left, right, and center, you'll never get funded, etc. So I wanted this to be an element of what you need to master. You need to master people as a skill. And I got a lot of feedback from readers from that. They really enjoyed that chapter. But the main theme was, Robert, we need more. It wasn't enough. It was juicy. It was tantalizing, but we need more. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll respond to my readers and I will expand this into an entire book. But there were other things going on as well. My first book came out 20 years ago, 48 Laws of Power. And since then, I've done a lot of consulting with very powerful people in all different fields. And I've had a lot of experiences then, sort of helping people with their problems. And I've seen these themes in which people they don't really understand basic elements of human psychology, and it leads to all kinds of problems. They hire the exactly worst kind of employee based on their resume, based on their charm, based on their looks, and then all kinds of problems ensue. Or they have a partner with the worst kind of business partner who ends up being so aggressive that they push them out, or they get involved in an intimate relationship with someone who kind of ruins their life. So why are people so bad at these choices? Well, they're not really good at understanding people. They're not paying a deep enough attention. They're only looking at the surfaces. So based on mastery and based on my experience with consulting, I felt a deep need out there to help people understand some certain basics about human psychology and what really, really governs human behavior. Because I believe there are certain patterns, patterns I've seen in my own life and I've seen in the people I've dealt with. And these patterns are what I end up calling human nature, unconscious forces that govern a lot of what we do that we're not even aware of. And I want to make you the reader of these forces inside you so you can break your own bad habits. And I want you to be able to see them in other people so you can understand others on a much higher level and be able to influence them instead of always being frustrated by the people you're dealing with. One thing that I've definitely associated with, most people can because we tend to look at the world and assume other people look at the world the same way. So maybe getting back to, again, the premise of the book, when a person sits down to read it, what have you seen as the outcome, the result of somebody who has read it and where it's made an, an impact? Well, that's an interesting question. It's only been out for about eight months now, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I haven't gotten a lot of feedback, but I have been getting some. And one of the main themes is, which is not too surprising, but it wasn't exactly what I expected, is that it's making people think a lot about themselves. So they're reading the book and they're reading about narcissism or they're reading about envy or aggression. And they're going, wow, I have some of these traits in myself. I'm not as great as I thought I was. I thought that I was this really nice person who's always considered and thinking about other people. Maybe that's not true. Maybe I need to reconsider some of my own flaws. 
some of my own dark side, my shadow side, as I call it. And so one of the main effects I think is has is making people reassess who they are and kind of rethink some of their own behavior patterns. I went through that in writing the book. I'm writing a chapter on narcissism and I'm kind of going, damn it, man, you're kind of more narcissistic than you think. <laughs> Eye opener as I was sort of seeing traits that I was writing about in myself. So I think the number one thing that stood out in people reading the book so far is that it's really held up a mirror to them and made them actually focus on themselves instead of always pointing blame at other people and always blaming others for the problems in their life, looking at themselves and saying, maybe in some ways I'm the source of some of these patterns that are going on. That's been the main impact. Because obviously, if you become aware of yourself at a deeper level, you form conclusions based on an understanding of what's right and what's wrong, what's good or what's bad. So does that change? Because I look at, yeah, if your frame of reference as far as what life is about hasn't changed and you've now become more aware of yourself and maybe more of your flaws than anything else, of course, that's going to be somewhat disappointing. But I've maybe seen circumstances, because I think this is one of the things I got from it, is just more understanding of the context of life and what life is about, which I think oftentimes is one of those things that we're not always aware of, at least on a short-term basis. And so does that make sense? Does that resonate with maybe some of the feedback you've gotten? Well, yeah, it's not intended to make you depressed or hate yourself or dislike yourself. In fact, it's meant to have the opposite effect, which is a lot of the feedback that I'm getting. Because now that you're aware of some of these tendencies that are innate to all of us, you can start to begin to change yourself and you can start getting out of denial. So for instance, I have a chapter on envy, and where I say that this is rooted in human nature is that the human brain operates by comparing. That's how our knowledge is formed. That's what neuroscientists have discovered. And as a social animal, what this means is not only are we comparing information from the environment, but we're continually comparing ourselves to other people around us. If you look at yourself in the course of a day, you'd have to admit that you're continually comparing yourself to your peers to how much money they make, how much respect they're getting, how much attention they're getting on social media, etc. And so you can't help it, because that's how the human brain works. And that's where envy stems from. So if you're continually aware of what other people have, and it looks like they have more than what you have, you're going to have feelings of envy, but you're going to disguise it to yourself. You're going to disguise it in the form of, that person doesn't deserve his success. He's not really worth it. He's not really good. And you're going to criticize them, or maybe you'll even take action against them without ever realizing that envy is the source of your emotions. Envy, I want to tell you, the reader, there's nothing wrong with feeling envy. There's nothing wrong with being a human being. There's nothing wrong with feeling aggressive or being self-absorbed. I want to take the guilt out of all of this. I just simply want to shine a spotlight on who you are so that you can maybe take that mechanism of comparing yourself to others and turn it into a positive, which is what each chapter in the book ends with, how you can take this quality and turn it into something productive and positive. If that's the moral component or the goodness component, then that may be it. So instead of constantly comparing yourself to others who are better than you, why not compare yourself to others who have it worse than you, so that you can feel some gratitude for the success that you've had, for the family that supports you, etc. So look at people who have less. Obviously, sometimes the people you are envying, if you actually got to know them, you would realize that their life is actually quite miserable. They're not as happy as they seem. 
on social media, people always give the impression that they're taking the most wonderful vacations, they're meeting the most fabulous people. But really, if you got to know them, actually their lives is as boring as you could possibly imagine. So maybe there's no need to envy them. So on and on and on, how you can take this comparing mechanism and actually make yourself a better human being out of it. So one question I had was your experience in writing the book and researching, was there anything that you became aware of that made an impact on you or maybe changed the direction of the book? Well, I always kind of go into books with an open mind. I have a bias. My bias tends to be somewhat negative. I have a somewhat negative human nature. You probably, if you know my books, you recognize that. But I didn't want that to govern this book that I wrote. I wanted to be open-minded. I wanted to read books like Steven Pinker's book, who's much more optimistic than I am, to sort of shed a light onto some ideas that I don't necessarily share, but that I don't end up writing a book that's just pure confirmation bias. So there were things in the process of opening it up that did surprise me. I learned that I did a chapter on aggression, and I read a lot about the anthropology and the sources of aggression in human beings. And it was quite surprising for me to realize that our ancestors, our hunter-gatherer ancestors going back 50,000 years ago, were actually very violent, very aggressive. So this notion of the kind of happy tribe member just sort of living off the land and being so happy and all that, there was actually extremely high murder rates. It was war going on, constant skirmishes, high degrees of envy and murder and violence within the tribe. So I had that predisposition to kind of maybe think that, but this was quite shocking for me to realize that this is something, a lot of the things that a problem that we have is we tend to want to think of us humans as being this sort of ultra sophisticated creatures who created the internet, who are so sophisticated, so far removed from our primitive past. And I don't believe that. I think that we're actually still very much a slave to this primitive past. So I kept an open mind, but a lot of the research that I had sort of confirmed these ideas. That makes sense. I look at just how DNA and what we've come to understand as far as it's concerned, where there is a degree of sophistication that's different than our predecessors. Yet at the same time, those, our instinctive nature seems to be very similar, right? And I think the whole awareness side of things is, yeah, I think in this day and age, like, it seems like the accountability factor to who we should be or how we should be happy or what we should wear, whatever is much higher than it was before. So we're driven more in a sense, but at the same time, there are these like natural things about us, right? That are just there. And oftentimes we consider that a flaw, but do you consider that like a flaw or do you consider like these natural attributes or tendencies or drives to be just what they are and not necessarily good or bad? Yeah, they're not good or bad. Nothing is good or bad. It's just human nature. So the problem that we face is that things evolved back in hundreds of thousands of years ago for a purpose, for a reason. So we evolved as social animals that had to have extremely tight, cohesive group in order to survive because humans are actually physically very weak and we could only survive by working in numbers and groups. And so we developed extremely high empathic powers where we could sense, this is before the invention of language, we could sense the emotions of other people around us without ever having to say anything. And this kind of viral vulnerability that we humans have 
that was so much a part of our survival is actually not very adapted to 21st century life. Because what it means is we're so open to the ideas and opinions of other people, and we see that on social media, that it becomes hard for us to detach ourselves and think for ourselves and think rationally instead of always being moved by the tribes that we belong to, by the heated political discussions of the people we always agree with. It's hard for us to divorce ourselves because this is bred into us, wired into our brains. It served a function Mm -hmm. 50,000 years ago, but we no longer are living in groups of 30 people. So a lot of the things that evolved early on aren't adapted to 21st century life, and that's what causes us so many problems. You mentioned a moment ago about your interactions with very high-level, influential people, and you see a lot of these elements of human nature at the highest levels, the lowest levels, and obviously in between, right? So in the end, like an understanding of this, what does that give someone? Like they become aware that they're an individual, they become aware of themselves, and it's not necessarily part of like an abstract group, right? But it's an individual and their character and their makeup and their desires and, and so forth. Like when a person becomes aware of that, like how does life change? Become aware of all of the laws of human nature, the whole book? I would say become more aware of themselves and as it relates to their human nature. Well, that revolutionizes them. That's the whole point of the book. It should change everything that you do, everything that you think. It should have a radical, radical effect on the reader. I don't write books that have just kind of a soft little, oh, maybe I'll think about this. I want to actually go inside your head and change how you look at the world. So just take, for example, law number seven about it how to influence people. I argue that people are naturally defensive. And if you go up, normally you're locked inside of your own mind. You're always thinking about your own desires, your own wishes, and you want them to fund your startup, for instance. And you think, man, my startup is so wonderful. I'm just going to give them a great pitch and they're going to love it and that'll work. And you're working against human nature because people are naturally defensive. They don't have any reason to support you. They're not naturally your ally. There has to be something in their own self-interest. We are all overworked. We're all overtasked in the world today and have one more person coming at us, trying to influence and telling us about our idea. Oh God, I can't take it. Okay. But you're never going to realize this. You're going to go give them your pitch and say, yeah, that's wonderful. Two days later, three days later, you don't hear anything. A week later, two weeks later, okay, finally you realize they're not interested in it at all. It's because you didn't understand something very basic. The people you deal with have an opinion about themselves, right? I go into this in the book and I explain how that opinion is formed. We all have certain basics about how we think of ourselves. We think of ourselves as morally good. We think of ourselves as autonomous, that we control our own lives. And we think of ourselves as intelligent, at least relatively intelligent for the field that we're in. There'll be other aspects of that opinion that might depend on the individual, like I am super self-reliant or I'm a rebel. Nobody tells me what to do, whatever. If you go in there with your pitch or your idea and you somehow challenge that idea, you somehow make people feel like maybe they're not so intelligent or maybe they don't really know what they're doing. It's not your intention, but you're implying it. You're going to make them defensive instead of lowering their resistance going to make it harder for you to try and get to them. So you have to understand that you need to set things up before you hit people with your idea. You need to lower their resistance. You need to validate who they think they are. And it's not necessarily bullshit. 
people are generally good. They generally do have good qualities. And if you validate them, if you make them feel that they are intelligent, that they are moral, etc., they're not going to be as resistant to you. Well, simply getting outside of your own mindset and your own self-absorption and thinking about the other person's needs, thinking about what they're missing in life, give them validation. Already the whole game has changed 180% right there. I don't know, ridiculous number, but it just changes the whole game. And you'd be shocked at how many high-level CEOs, powerful people in the entertainment industry, they never, never use this very basic idea. They're violating that law continually. And it's understandable because we're so wrapped up in ourselves that it takes an effort to think inside the mindset of the person we're dealing with and try and get inside their way of looking at the world. But if you're able to do that to some degree on all of these laws that I talk about, it will change everything that you do. Well, as you mentioned in the beginning, our life in large part is our relationships, right? And most satisfaction and happiness comes from that. And I wanted to shift gears. I wanted to make sure that we hit on this was, I would say, one of our instrumental relationships to happiness, which is our partner, right? So would you maybe talk about kind of the, the section in the book where you go into masculine and feminine, men and women? Yeah, well, glad you asked that because it's the chapter that people ask the least about. Essentially, you know, I'm trying to cover all aspects of human nature. And one of the key aspects is our gender, our sex, and how we relate to it. And I was deeply influenced in my research by a very famous psychologist named Carl Jung, who talks about an anima and an animus. And I'm thinking of this in reference to, and so is he, into the intimate partners that we choose in our love relationships. But it also affects our work relationships, because now in the work world, we all have to deal with men and women, where men now are working for female bosses, women have been, always been working for male bosses. So it also influences the work world. And what Jung discovered was, start with a man. A man, his earliest years begin in relationship to his mother, most often. Those first two years, 98% of his contact is really powerfully, physically only with the mother, right? And that female feminine presence, her female feminine energy, which is definitely different than a man's. I don't care how politically correct we want to get. Men and women are different, biologically different. That energy from the woman, the mother, he takes inside of himself. She becomes a part of him has a very deep impact. When you're one or two years old, you are so vulnerable. You are so open to influence. It's amazing. So a young boy interjects that presence of the mother, and it becomes a part of who he is. And it becomes a part of perhaps some of her qualities if she's a gentle, loving person or she's maternal. Not all mothers are alike, and they don't have to be. That becomes a part of him. He carries that within himself. And as he goes through life, Jung called that part for a man an anima. It's like a little woman that lives inside of the man that came from the mother. It can also be influenced by siblings, by sisters as well, but primarily from the mother. He carries that little mother figure within him, and it influences forever throughout his entire life his choices in the women that he wants to partner with. He may be looking for someone like that mother figure who has that nurturing quality that he has in himself, but he never really developed. Or if his mother didn't pay him attention, this is a very common pattern. Let's say she was very narcissistic and was more self-absorbed and not such a good mother. He's going to spend his life looking for a woman who is similar to his mother, 
oddly enough, who is kind of self-absorbed in this sort of perverse idea that he will be able to turn it around and make that relationship work as if he could go back in the past and rewire his mother. It doesn't make logical sense, but Jung, who studied thousands of married couples, found this pattern over and over again. The woman has the same thing with the man. It's called the animus, and it's the father figure. Now, that energy isn't as direct and early on as powerful as the boy and the mother, but it's still very powerful. And she takes inside of herself, she internalizes the presence of that man. And that male can become a voice in her. A lot of animus figures that women carry are very critical because a lot of father figures or men will tend to be critical of the woman. She'll internalize these critical voices that Jung compared to like a bunch of judges in her head, always judging her for her looks, judging her for not being good enough at this or that. And so she'll make odd choices based on her relationship to her father. And I talk in the book about Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who's one of the classic figures in this, and that she had a father who was a total seducer, a total rake. He could never be faithful to any woman. and Her parents, in fact, divorced. But she loved him, and he loved her, and they were devoted. They were just extremely close. And throughout her life, she constantly was partnering with men who were the mirror image of her father, John F. Kennedy, who cheated on her left, right, and center. Aristotle Onassis, who cheated on her left, right, and center. Powerful men like her father. She couldn't break that pattern. And so I thought it was important to make the other element of the chapter that's important is to make you realize that men have a deep sort of feminine part of their personality. It comes from the mother figure. Women have a very masculine side to their personality that usually comes from the father figure. And you're either in deep denial of that aspect of who you are, in which case you repress it and it comes out in weird ways, or you're able to integrate that part into your character and make it something very strong and powerful. So a man who can have a sort of, who can still be manly and masculine, but use his empathetic side, who can use some of that kindly maternal energy from the mother, will actually be a better person, a better man for that, for integrating all these parts of his personality. I could go on and on, but that's just to sort of give you an idea. And what you're saying, because again, going back to when we first started talking on this topic, the male and female relationships that exist, whether it's the workplace or whether it's in social circles or your intimate relationships, I mean, they're very different, biologically different. And it's not instinctive, right, that a man can empathize to that level with a woman. And so you're essentially saying, again, that because it's not instinctive, becoming aware of it, observing and understanding, learning about it, right, is going to improve the way in which you embrace your feminine side, your masculine side, and then vice versa and the person that you're engaging with. Right, definitely. Yeah. And with this, I mean, I know your time is super valuable and I really appreciate the time you spent. What's the significance of just observing, not necessarily observing yourself and your nature and what compels you? but also just in all the different environments that you're in, being aware and observing others. Like, I think if you were to give a nutshell of, you were to sum up in one sentence, you'd probably be along those lines from what I'm assuming. But what does that give you? Like, why is that important to somebody? Well, there are many aspects, many ways to answer that question. First of all, as a social human, it's absolutely essential that you get, develop the skill to cut off your internal monologue and observe the people around you. 
So a lot of people in the world today, and studies have borne this out, are not only finding problems dealing with people, but there's a lot of loneliness in our culture. So you may be doing okay in your career, but your relationships are kind of brittle. They're not deep and they're not fulfilling. And a lot of it is because you're not really paying deep attention to the people around you. You're not really understanding them. You're more about yourself and what your own needs. And other people can sense that. And it creates these kind of lukewarm relationships. And also, because you're not paying deep attention, you're making all kinds of mistakes in your career. So being able to get outside of yourself and observe people will, is absolutely essential to surviving in the world today, to building better relationships and to having more success in your career, because everything depends on your social and political skills if you're working in an office. The moment you put three human beings together in a room, politics intervenes. Already you have egos, and you have to think in these terms. So you need to be able to observe people. Understand that some scientists estimate that 95% of human communication is nonverbal. So the way people smile, their fake smiles, how to differentiate a fake smile from a real smile, how to sense when people are smiling, but they really kind of resent you. There's some kind of underlying resentment there. It's very powerful. Or how people, when you first walk up to them, their body language reveals whether they're excited to see you or not. You're missing all of that information. You're walking around as if you had blinders on your eyes. What's the point of being a social animal if you're not observing? If you're not seeing this language of nonverbal communication, you're continually misreading people. You think that that smile that they give means they like your project or your idea or they like you, but in fact, they don't, and you're missing that. And it's not that difficult to learn how to develop the skill. The other element of it is, is that being so self-absorbed is actually kind of depressing and leaden. You're always sort of wrapped up in your own problems, and it kind of becomes a sinkhole that you go deeper and deeper into. So being able to observe people is like therapy. It's like you get outside yourself. You get outside your little problems, your little world, your little obsessions, and you involve yourself more deeply with other people. You won't feel as depressed as you were, right? And also, you'll find that people are actually quite interesting. A lot of the reason that you're not paying attention is you think that you are more interesting than other people. Your thoughts, your desires are more important than others. But if you reverse this and you start becoming a better observer in life, a little light bulb will go on in your head and you'll go, that person who works at Starbucks and serves me coffee every day, they're actually much more interesting than I think they are. They have an inner life. They have weirdness. They have dreams that are strange. They're doing things on the side that are kind of interesting. People are interesting. They're like characters in a book or a movie. And that's how I want you to think about it. We go to movies because we, we're voyeurs and we get to go inside the lives of other people and go, wow, you know, what is that person thinking? That, that's a really interesting character. Is he really a psycho killer or not? We're fascinated. Think of the people you deal with like characters in a movie. They might be a psycho killer for all you know, or they might not be, but they're interesting. So getting outside yourself will make you a better person, will make you feel happier, will make your life easier. And it will also, I believe, contribute greatly to your creative skills. Because the ability to get outside of yourself and inside of other people loosens the mind up. 
you no longer have all of your preconceptions about this person is good, this person is bad. You learn to relax and be in the moment and go, I'm not going to judge this guy that I'm talking to. Instead, I'm just going to listen. And so it has an overall effect. I talked about this in Mastery. People who are socially aware are often more creative. They don't have these kind of rigid mental categories. I could go on and on, but the benefits of becoming a better observer in life are infinite. I'd like to end with this last kind of point, which you weren't aware of, but the last six months or so, we've focused the podcast and guests and interviews and topics around the idea of entrepreneurship as well as the environment of capitalism. And the reason why I was adamant to have you on is that for me, at least, you have success and failure in business as well as in society due to your understanding of relationships as far as what I have experienced. And so with what you've observed with the entrepreneur world, the startup world, the business world, and the success and failure there, how do you see your book making an impact in those who either are in the process of running a business or starting a business or bringing on partners? And what do you see as the impact of your book on the success of ventures in general? Well, I think it should have a huge impact. I mean, I could go through the laws. Law number one should make you more aware of how emotions govern your decisions so you can become more rational and make better decisions. But the laws about how to judge people, how to judge their character, I have this chapter on character, will mean you won't hire exactly the wrong person to partner with. You can't believe how many times people hire exactly the wrong person to be their partner and the misery that that causes. And this goes back to the Bible. It's very much ingrained in human nature. You will stop making bad choices. I have a very important chapter on grandiosity. And this is a problem that really, really affects entrepreneurs. And I know because I worked for one. I was on the board of directors of a publicly traded company. And the CEO was a classic entrepreneur who started it from scratch. Very charismatic, very brilliant but he wouldn't listen to other people. He thought he had all the answers himself. He was a bit of a narcissist. And it ended up that inability, that I think that idea that you're God, that you can do anything is what destroyed him. And it's kind of a little bit of the complex that an Elon Musk has. So an, this chapter will make you realize that success is actually the worst thing that can happen to you in many ways. It makes you think you have the golden touch it makes you really think that you don't have, that luck wasn't involved, that other people didn't help you, that you're some kind of God figure that can snap your fingers and get whatever you want. It's an illusion. It'll help that way. And then I have a chapter on authority. I maintain that the humans respond to a certain kind of primal type of authority figure. It's, it almost goes back to chimpanzees. It's so rooted in who we are. And I sort of lay out for you the kind of paradigm for the 21st century of what we, how we relate to authority figures and what we will consider a powerful person who has certain traits. And this is a person who's empathetic, believe it or not, that cares deeply about the employees, that involves them creatively, that leads from the front, that leads by example, is not expecting people to do the kind of work that he or she is not willing to do. And that is a person that has a vision. Having a vision is essential to being a leader. I mean, you can have a vision like Elon Musk, and not be able to execute it. And that's another problem. But a lot of leaders in the world today with quarterly reports and all the pressures we feel in the stock market or if you're a publicly traded company are only reacting to things that happen month by month. 
and a true leader. And what people want and desperately need in a leader is the ability to see a year down the road, two years down the road, to have an overall vision for where the company is headed. I preach this over and over again to that entrepreneur that I talked to you about. Where is the company headed? What is the brand? This brand has to adapt because tastes have changed from five years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Never listen to me. And then the ship just went down. I'm not saying I would have saved this, the sinking ship, but it was a key element. And then another chapter, I think all the chapters are important, but another chapter deals with knowing the zeitgeist, knowing the spirit of the times, so that your idea, your startup, think of the times that we live in as a kind of a wave that's cresting and then falling, right? A lot of people are kind of riding that wave, or they're behind it a little bit, then they fall back. You want to be ahead of that wave. You want to be ahead of where the times are. You want to be five, six months, a year ahead of where people are going. That's genius level. That's true vision. So you create something like Steve Jobs, create the iPod that revolutionizes the tech world because you're thinking a year, two years ahead down the line. So I have a chapter on how to read the zeitgeist and how to understand the spirit of the times. I mean, man, I could go through all the chapters, but an entrepreneur, this should be like a big juicy steak for them. Well, Robert, hey, this, this has been incredible. And thank you so much for, you know, for your valuable time. I loved it. And I know you can see how much you enjoy just having these conversations and yeah. how much you enjoy writing and talking about things that, you know, make a difference. And so I'm excited for our listeners to read the book, but can you maybe give out of ways in which they can also follow you to be aware of other things that you're working on or if you're active on social media, I mean, what's the best way for someone to... I have a website. It's called, it's Power, Seduction, and War. The and is spelled out. So Power, Seduction, and War.com. Those are the titles of my first three books, 48 Laws, Art of Seduction, and Strategies of War. And there I have links to the book that I did with 50 Cent. I wrote a book, co-wrote a book with 50 Cent, mm-hmm. and to Mastery, and to my new book, and then to my Twitter and Instagram accounts. So yeah, that's probably the best resource. And there's also a link for if you need, want to try and email me as well. Well, Robert, thank you again for your time. And I hope to talk to you some other time. I would love to, Patrick, whenever you want to. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Robert. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Lord,